0: United States with regard to religious liberty, it's not as pristine as we would like to think it is. You know, when we think about our country, we think about our founding fathers here seeking religious liberty, and in many and, and that was true, that that's why they came. They were, the, the pilgrims who came to Massachusetts Bay were congregationalists. And they were fleeing England, and they were fleeing the Church of England, and they wanted to create a place where they could worship freely. However, however, their record and that score wasn't perfect. Yes, they were congregationalists, and yes, the congregational church was the state church of Massachusetts all the way until about 1830, long after America became a nation, but If you were a Baptist in the 1630s in Massachusetts, that wouldn't have been a very comfortable experience. In fact, the the, uh, Puritans uh, would board up their church doors, and that's a famous story at the First Baptist Church of Boston that actually happened, where um, Congregationalists went there. They were so upset about these Baptists that they boarded up the doors of their church. Well, then uh, we notice that uh, in the 1700s, Luke Goodrich, who's an attorney, a religious liberty attorney that we're going to talk about in a moment, um, he points out that in the 1700s that uh, the Quakers were then mistreated in America. And in the 1800s, when Roman Catholics came here from Europe, they were mistreated in America, and they were subjected to all kinds of government interference and regulation. And then, in the 1900s, the Jehovah's Witnesses in America went through a time of persecution. Well, um, with all of those things being true, uh, the reality is is that um, that our country. Uh, was generally tolerant, even though we have examples of times where our country wasn't tolerant of different viewpoints that people had when it came to faith. Uh, Here's a quote from Luke Goodrich, who sums up the situation of our time. And Luke Goodrich is uh, is an attorney. He works with the Beckett Fund. He is a leading religious liberty lawyer. In fact, he wrote a book, Free to Believe, which is... Uh, which one, one magazine gave the award for being the Christian Book of the Year this year. But this is what uh, Luke Goodrich says. For much of American history, common Christian beliefs were largely compatible with the prevailing culture. There was nothing remarkable about believing that Christianity is true, that all other religions are false, that abortion is wrong, or that marriage is to be only between a man and a woman. Not everyone agreed with Not everyone agreed with those beliefs, but they they didn't provoke hostility. They weren't viewed as a threat to the dominant culture. But this is what he said about our time and why our time is different. Now our culture has changed. For the first time in American history, common Christian beliefs are viewed as incompatible with the prevailing culture. Like other religious minorities before us, we're viewed as a threat. So religious freedom for Christians is under pressure like never before. This is from an attorney who's argued many cases before the Supreme Court in terms of religious liberty. Well, if Luke Goodrich is correct and more and more pressure is being exerted on Christians, the question is, is that what will we do in light of that? As the culture begins to exert more pressure on us, will we give in to that pressure? As things get more difficult, will we more and more go along with those things? And and ultimately, the question that we have to ask each of ourselves in this situation is is whether or not Christ is worth it. Whether or not Christ is worth the suffering that is oftentimes involved in Christ following him. Now the reason that we're looking at this text is because we're looking at we're looking at five testimonies about the birth of Jesus. This seems probably like an unusual text. The transfiguration of our Lord is one of the testimonies, but the testimony that that I'd like to give is the testimony of the Father. And he says something here that he said at Jesus baptism, and the Father certainly was a witness to the birth of his son. But the Father was also a witness to the whole life of his Son, and the Father has lived in perfect union with the Son for all eternity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God. And so uh, this text gives us a perspective on the Father's testimony about his Son, Jesus. Well, again, the question for us is, is, is Christ worth it? Is Christ worth it? Well, the truth of the matter is, is that it is only in Christ that we find our highest meaning and purpose in life. It's only in Christ that we find our highest meaning and purpose in life. Now, just kind of to give you a little bit of context with the the scripture passage that we're looking at, shortly before the transfiguration, uh, God revealed to Peter that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, this was earth-shattering because... It was their belief in that day that the Messiah would come and would set up a political kingdom. Most people didn't have any 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 thought to the idea that the Messiah would come and suffer. Even though Isaiah 53 was there, it was sort of not integrated into people's thinking about the Messiah. And so there was a belief among the disciples and there was a belief among the wider culture in Israel that one day the Messiah would come and he would lift the boot of of Rome off of their shoulders, and he would usher in a new age of peace. Now, it is true that all of these things will ultimately come to pass, but that wasn't his plan at that time. And so Jesus prepares, him for, prepares them for what a life in Christ will be like when he tells them that he is going to go to Jerusalem, that he's going to suffer, that he's going to die, but he's going to be raised. He also points out to them that if they want to follow him, they must be willing to take up their cross In order to do that, they need to take up their cross daily. And the point of this passage is to steal their hearts for the battles that are going to take place in the future in their life to show them that Jesus is certainly more than worth any sacrifice that is required to serve him. So why is it that Christ gives us our highest meaning and purpose in life? well the answer is simple and that is is because there is no one else like him there is no one else like him now in the story we notice that jesus takes peter james and john with him to pray up on a high mountain now there's this is all, this, there there there's lots of debate about what mountain that will be traditionally people believe that mountain to be mount tabor uh but uh, uh, the reality is is that that was not a, a really great location, particularly for what was about to happen because there was a village on top of that mountain. And so uh, more than likely, that's not where they went. Some people have suggested Mount Hermon. It is a, uh, it is a huge mountain. It snow peaked much of the year, but uh, more than likely, that was geographically not in the, in the right area, and it was just too cold. There's, a, there's another mountain called Mount Miron, and uh, just had a chance this this week. It's probably Mount Morone. I, I had an opportunity this week just to go on YouTube. That's an amazing thing for those of us who have never had an opportunity to go to Israel and see Israel. We can watch Israel on YouTube. And so uh, I had a chance to go on there, look up Mount Morone, just to kind of get an idea, a feel for this mountain. And it's a beautiful in a beautiful, lush place. And at one point you can look over and see the Mediterranean Sea and then on the other side you can see the Sea of Galilee and it's situated just in this beautiful place and more than likely that's where Jesus went. We don't know if that's where Jesus went. Uh, It might be a little piece of trivia but uh, more than likely that's where these events take place. But what is more important is that we understand the reason why Jesus would have taken them up to a mountain, particularly for an experience like this. Now, um, one of the things, if you read your Bible closely, you will see that people often commune with God on mountains in the Bible. Let's take the first example, and that's, that's Eden. Eden is called, in Ezekiel, it is called the holy mountain of God. Did you ever think about, when you think about Eden, the original Eden, have you ever thought about that being on a mountain? That's what Ezekiel says, the holy mountain of God. That was the original temple. Eden was the original temple. God dwelled with his people in Eden. That was the place of communion between God and man. Adam was a kingly figure. He was God's vice regent. He was to go and represent God. But also he was a priestly figure. Adam was to mediate the blessings of God to the world. And so Eden was like a temple and uh, it was also a mountain temple. And remember other places where God met people. Think about Moses, remember? Moses went on Mount Sinai, and that's where he met with God, and when Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, it became a kind of temple, the meeting place between God and man. Or or we think about when when, um, Elijah went on Mount Horeb to uh, meet with God. That became, in a sense, when he went there to meet with God, it became like a temple, and by the way, Mount Horb and Mount Sinai are likely the same mountain. And so we have this picture over and over again of, of the significance in the Old Testament of mountains. Remember when it was time for Solomon to build a mountain. Do you remember? Anybody remember what mountain that was built on? Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah. Same place where God told Abraham to sacrifice his son, and as you know the story, Abraham didn't sacrifice his son. But it was in the same place that Abraham's sacrifice was to be made that the that Israel was going would later set up their temple and make their sacrifices. That would be a temple. It would be on Mount Moriah. And then finally, the prophets tell us that the New Jerusalem will be on a mountain. Listen to this. This is um, you can see this. Isaiah chapter two, verse two. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow, in, flow to it. And so we have this picture of, of the new Jerusalem being on a mountain. So it was here in this mountain that Jesus is with his disciples. And if you read closely Luke's account, you will know that the disciples were sleeping uh, when all of this began. But Jesus was transfigured. And the word here for transfigured is, is the word that we get in English, metamorphosis. It's transliterated into English, metamorphosis, sort of like when a, when a um, caterpillar becomes a butterfly, it goes through metamorphosis. It changes And we notice that Jesus' face was like the sun. Sort of like when when Moses came down from Mount Sinai in Exodus 34. His face was shining. So Jesus at this moment, his face was shining like the sun. But, but but, But more than Moses, Jesus' clothes had this white glow about them. And it gives us a taste of what heaven must have been like. Now you can imagine this was at night. We, we believe that because the disciples had been sleeping. Jesus was there praying, and you can imagine there with no light in the backdrop of the darkness on that mountain, all of a sudden, the disciples are awakened with seeing the brightness and the glory of Jesus, his face shining, his clothes shining, and uh, they for a moment had a little taste of heaven. And it makes me think, it makes me think about this week, our dear brother Pastor Ken Nanfeld, remember last week I told you the story about a person who got bad news that uh, his, he, was gonna have to, um, he was going to have to uh, uh, pay because the dealer sent him a check, or not the dealer, but the manufacturer sent him a check, and that the dealer said it was meant for them, and he was going to have to pay them. And they said, I'm sorry, we have bad news for you. And then he said in return, well, I have some good news for you that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you need him in your life. And then the woman on the phone, eventually, she prayed, Lord, I believe that you died on the cross for me and I need you in my life. In the middle of that phone conversation with the woman from the dealer. Remember I told you that story? I didn't tell you the name, but that was Pastor Ken. Story about him. And um, so think about Pastor Ken's experience. On Monday, he went in, he was having surgery on wednesday he was going to have heart surgery and on on monday he goes in he has his his covid test just to make sure he's all clear he's not feeling well talks to his son on the phone wasn't feeling great decided that he was just going to drive home and then um it was sometime between when he drove home and uh later that night they he, that he was gone but but think about what that must have been like for him in that moment you know, here we are in this, this dark world, all of the trouble brewing around us. And then all of a sudden he closes his eyes, whenever that was, and he opens his eyes to the glory of heaven. Jesus says in John chapter 14 that he will come back and take us to be with him, that we may be where he is at. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that was like for him? His desire all of his life was to see Jesus. I mean, ever since he was a kid, he had a, he had a passion for Christ. And it, and it overflowed into every aspect of his life. It overflowed into every relationship. And even to his last day, he was growing in his faith. Sometimes, sometimes when people that are close to us pass away, that, that other person serves as an accountability partner. Think about... Pastor Ken and Adele, and, and he lost Adele just earlier this year. And, and a lot of people, they, they, they uh, take their foot off the pedal spiritually when something like that happens. But the amazing thing about Pastor Ken was he just doubled down. He became more and more passionate about the Lord. He began to think more and more about heaven. And, and so this is what he lived his life for, and then at that moment, he closed his eyes on this world, and he opened them up, and the glory of the Lord in heaven. What was that like? Well, these disciples got a little taste of that here in these verses. You see this glory of the transfigured Jesus and then Moses and Elijah show up and they're talking with Jesus. Now, what is the significance of this? Well, first of all, Moses is the one who gave the law and Elijah was the greatest of the prophets and so now you have two key figures of the old testament here who are speaking to jesus moses is the one who brought the law and elijah was the one who called people to obey it but there's more to it Uh, we talk about the old testament right we're talking about the old testament that part of the bible that's before the new testament when uh new testament about jesus They called it the Law and the Prophets. They called the Old Testament the Law and the Prophets. So here you have the greatest representatives of the Law and the Prophets, the greatest representatives of the whole Old Testament, and now they are speaking to Jesus. And so we have this incredible situation, a situation where the disciples should have just stood back and marveled and watched this as this was going on, maybe gleaned something from it. But you know what happens? Have you ever known somebody who has this tendency that when they get nervous, they just start talking? Maybe it's you. Maybe you're like that. Get nervous, you start talking, and then um, maybe, maybe you talk so much that sometimes you put your foot in your mouth, and then you try to extract your foot, but the more you talk, the more the foot goes down the throat, right? You ever experienced that? Well, well, Peter had a problem like that. He considered himself the spokesman for the disciples. Uh, he was somebody who loved to talk, and so now he begins to, he begins to speak. And um, he said in verse 4, And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, look, it is good that we're here. He probably means that it's good that we're here to preserve the memory of what's going on. It's good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Um, this, is, um, this is actually a technical device uh, called polysundeton. In, in Greek, and this this technical device means just simply means many ands, many ands, and so when when you go through a passage of scripture and you see a list of things, and and you you see that it, it might have one thing after another and there's no ands, just the way that we write it, that's called asundeten, That means no ands, and, and so there's no particular importance to the way that that particular list is oriented. It's just like we would, we would orient a, a grocery, grocery list. But when you insert the ands in between each of the things in a long list, it means that you are giving equal weight to each one in the list. And, and that's exactly what I believe that is happening here. This is what I think Peter is doing. He is ascribing equal weight To um, to Jesus and Moses and Elijah, he's going to make three tents, each one for each each one of these these figures that are in front of him. Now, scholars uh, have, uh, have written a lot of ink about what Peter was after. Was he referring to Israel's wilderness wandering when they lived in tents? Was he referring to the Feast of Tabernacles where they would stay in tents? What is it that Peter was referring to here? More than likely, it wasn't anything deep. Peter was just talking. Um, In fact, Luke tells us that Peter didn't even know what he was saying. F.F. Bruce, the great New Testament scholar, typifies what Peter is saying this way, the whole scheme, a stupidity. <laughs> but, but one of the fundamental foolish parts of this is that, that he wants to ascribe some kind of equality between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Now, maybe in the minds of the disciples, that means that they think that they're elevating Jesus in status, and they're honoring Jesus in status. Well, we will see very clearly in the text that, that God the Father will have no part of uh, putting Jesus and Moses and Elijah all on the same footing. Now, we notice in verse 5, it says that a bright cloud overshadowed them. There's a very famous pastor in America. I think he's pastor of the second largest church in America. And it wasn't too long ago that he said that Christians need to unhitch the Old Testament from their faith. If we unhitch the Old Testament from our faith, there's no way we could understand what was going on in this passage. That is absolutely crazy talk. Crazy talk from somebody who is a pastor of a a huge church. Um, We have to understand as we read the scriptures what the original readers would have known about this. You have this this great cloud that overshadows them, that uh, overwhelms them. In the Old Testament, we see pictures of this, of God's Shekinah glory coming. We have, first of all, when we think about when Moses completed the tabernacle, that was a permanent site kind of structure that was like a temple. God was in Eden. That was a temple. He met with people. People sinned against God. There was separation between heaven and earth. The temple was gone. The temple of Eden was gone. People were not allowed to go there anymore. And so now God is reestablishing his temple on earth. And so he gives them a place to meet with him. He gives them a tabernacle. And when Moses finished the tabernacle, we read in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. See that? There was such glory when the tabernacle was established that that, uh, Moses could not enter it, this cloud of glory. Or when after Solomon gave his dedicatory prayer, now uh, we, we went from a tabernacle to a fixed temple that was in Jerusalem. And when Solomon gave his dedicatory prayer after he finished praying we notice here it says as soon as solomon finished his prayer fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the lord because the glory of the lord filled the lord's house and so we have this picture again right the first picture we see was in the tabernacle moses couldn't enter then we see in the temple Then the priest couldn't enter because the Shekinah glory of God was so great. And then we notice here the same glory cloud now enveloping Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And this glory cloud was symbolic of God's divine presence. You see, why why was the glory cloud associated with the tabernacle? Because that was the true temple. That was the meeting place between God and man. Why was God's Glory cloud. Why did it fill the temple? It's because that was the meeting place between God and man. Well, why did the glory cloud fill that place on that mountain where Jesus was standing? Because Jesus himself became the temple, the meeting place between God and man. And if we want to experience a relationship with God, it must be through Jesus, there is no other way. And so sometimes the wider culture thinks that we are bigoted as Christians because we say that there is no other way. But, but the reason why there is no other way is because, because the, the way that God has provided, the meeting place that God has provided is this temple, and this temple is Jesus, and our hope is only found in Him. And so that's why we call people to Jesus, because it's in Jesus that we can actually come to know and have fellowship with the living God. Jesus is the true temple. And we see, these, we see these marks all over the place, all the way through Scripture from the beginning of the end. We see this beautiful tapestry woven through the Bible that Christ is our true temple. Christ is the true meeting place between God and man. And amazingly, it was, it was in that same place where the fixed temple stood, Mount Moriah, nearby where Jesus Uh, That that same place where God told Abraham to sacrifice his son, but God didn't ultimately ask Abraham to do that. He provided another way. And and that same place where the children of Israel would make their sacrifices year after year, that same place nearby was the same place that God the Father would allow God the Son to be the sacrificial offering for all humanity so that through him we can have life and life eternal. You have this beautiful picture coming together, the whole Bible coming together in the story of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. There, there, are, um, there are a lot of people who believe that they hear God speaking audibly to them. Some, sometimes I, I, it reminds me of a story of, um, of when um, there were these, these guys up in Minnesota. They were, they were ice fishermen. And one night it was cloudy, it was, it was not cloudy, it was foggy, it was cold. They went out and they decided to do some ice fishing. And as they were going around, they were looking, looking for the right spot. They, they, they found some ice somewhere and they got out their tools and they were ready to start digging. And then all of a sudden they hear this voice, there are no fish under the ice. And they became a little nervous as they heard that. And, and then they, they moved about to a different place. And they started getting their tools out to start making a hole in the ice. And then they hear again, there are no fish under the ice. And then they, they, they became nervous. What are we hearing? And then again, they moved and they found another spot and they began to make a hole in the ice. And, 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 and just before they started to cut into it, they heard, there are no fish under the ice. And then... One of the men dropped his tools to the ground, fell to his knees, reached his hands up into the air, and he said, Is that you, Lord? And then he heard in return, No, this is the owner of the ice rink. (laughs) You know, there, there are times where we can deceive ourselves into believing that we hear the voice of God. Sometimes it's because we want to hear certain things from him. Sometimes people want to hear good things from him, maybe promises that they depend on. Sometimes people uh, hear things, words of condemnation, because that's, what the, that's how they feel about themselves. But the reality is, is that in this situation, God did distinctly speak into the situation, and they heard his voice, and this is what God said. This is the testimony of God the Father about the Son This is my beloved son, we read in verse 5, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. First of all, we are given a description of the father's relationship to Jesus. This is my beloved son. This word, uh, beloved, speaks about someone who has a special bond with their child. Uh, This word is used in the Greek version that would have been, around in Jesus' day of the Old Testament. Uh, It's called the Septuagint, and this is what we see it in Genesis 22. This is what it says. The same word is used there. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, that phrase there, whom you love, is the same word, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So here we have this, this word that God used of, or God intended for Abraham's son, who he was to sacrifice, and the same word is used of God's son, who he allowed to be sacrificed for us. I mean, you couldn't make this up. You couldn't make this up. You see the the beauty of the language, the story of the Bible, how it's woven together so perfectly. This is his beloved son. Second thing we notice is he gives us a description about how the father feels about his son. He says, I am well pleased. I am well pleased. Uh, the word well-pleased means to take pleasure or delight in someone. It's sort of like the pleasure and delight that maybe you feel in a, a niece or a nephew, a friend, a child, a son, or a daughter. Uh, it's sort of like I've heard m- many parents often say, you know, uh, about their, their daughter, um, you know, I'd rather hear her play her violin and her little orchestra than go and hear an amazing symphony play. Rather hear that than the Boston Pops. Or they'll say about their son playing baseball, I have more fun going and watching my kid play baseball than I do going to a Red Sox game. And the reason why isn't because the little orchestra is better than the Boston Pops or the the, the baseball team that our kid is on is better than the Boston Red Sox, but the reason that we take such delight is because our child is part of it. And here we have the father delighted in his son, loves his son. I'm well pleased with him. And then we find the third description. It's how the father wants us to respond to his son. This is how the father wants us to respond to his son. He says, listen to him. Here they have they have the premier voices of the Old Testament, right? You have, you have Moses who gave the law. You have the, you have the principal prophet of all the prophets, Elijah, there. And what does the father say? This is my son. Listen to him. That's God's intention for every one of us. That's where we take our marching orders. It's from Jesus. It isn't from the world. It isn't from the news. It isn't from some other source. It is from Jesus. And if the winds of the world howl against us and the pressures come, well, they're going to come. But we're going to stand for Jesus and we're going to stand with Jesus because the Father says, listen to him. And this is critical in our own lives because we have all kinds of other voices that are speaking into our lives. We notice as we read in verses 6 through 8, it says, And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. And by the way, this word there for touching them means to embrace. It means to grab hold of someone. That's, that's the idea. It wasn't like he just tapped them on the shoulder. There was, a, there was this warm embrace there from Jesus. They were afraid. But what does he do? He comes alongside of them, saying, Rise and have no fear. I think about that sometime. You know, some of us are afraid to die. And nothing has brought this out more than COVID. So often you can look at people, there's a palpable fear in their eyes of death even among Christians, even among mature Christians, I want you to know, I want you to keep this scene in your mind. These men were terrified. They had this this early picture maybe of what heaven was like and what does Jesus do in that situation when they found themselves in such terror and fear? What does he do? He comes, he embraces them, and then he says to them, rise and have no fear. What a beautiful thing. We we can rely on that as Christians. Whether our time comes early or whether our time comes late, we can take comfort in knowing that we have a Savior who comes alongside of us and says, rise and have no fear. The life that we have awaiting us is far greater than the life that we have here. Rise and have no fear. We are with Jesus. He is our protector. We don't need to fear. We don't need to live that way anymore. What a blessing this is. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Jesus was the only one left. What was the point of that? Peter, don't put Elijah and Moses on the same level with Jesus. Jesus is the focal point of our life. He is the focal point of our faith. He is the focal point of our existence. And whether we stand or whether we fall, we fall with Jesus. This is the Father's testimony about Him. And so what does this tell us about our relationship with God? Three things. Try to move through these quickly. Number one, our understanding of the Bible must be shaped by Christ. Everything that we read, when we read the Bible, we need to try to look at it through the, the lens of how Jesus shapes it. For instance, very often we as Christians will have people come to us and say, how come you worship on Sunday and not on Saturday? Why is that? Now, it's not wrong to worship. We could worship every day of the week, right? But, but why do we worship? Why have Christians for 2,000 years worshiped on Sunday instead of Saturday in the Old Testament? Didn't, wasn't Saturday the Sabbath? Wasn't Saturday the day of worship? Well, what did, what did Jesus do? There was a metamorphosis that came with Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead. And from the very earliest days of the church, Christians have been worshiping on Sunday as a celebration of the resurrection. So when we gather on Sunday, it is a celebration to remember that our Savior lives. And that's why we worship on Sunday. The reason that we do that is because every every aspect, every avenue of the Bible should be understood through the lens of Jesus. Jesus. And so it's really important for us if we are to understand our faith, if we are to understand how the Bible fits together, we have to to immerse ourselves in the Gospels. We have to immerse ourselves in the stories of Jesus. We have to look at everything through his lens and then interpret it through the lens that he has given us to see the world. That's the first thing. The second thing is that our hierarchy of values must be shaped by Christ. Our hierarchy of values must be shaped by christ now this experience was a game changer for the disciples because they held moses and elijah here they probably held jesus here but now everything's been reversed the hierarchy of values have changed jesus is at the top of the rung in fact we can't even we couldn't even draw the other two on the scale in comparison to jesus and so so this reoriented their life this reoriented the way that they thought about everything and in the same way, this reorients the way that we think about everything. Remember about 20 years ago, um, everybody used to wear, I shouldn't say everybody, but, but like you go in a church and 60% of the people would have WWJD bracelets on. I think that it became even popular in the wider culture. People wore those things not even knowing what it was, right? But it, but it means what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Remember that, those bracelets and the idea was that, that in our whole life, in every situation that we think to ourselves before we do anything, that we think about what Jesus would do. So this idea of, of allowing Jesus to shape our values affects the way that we think about our family. Maybe, um, maybe this, this time, Christmas, this, this is a time that might exacerbate tensions in your family. Maybe in your extended family. Maybe there's that uncle out there that everybody's a little bit nervous about, whatever it is. The question is, is how would God call us to deal with that person? How would Christ want us to handle that person? Maybe it's with our children. How would Christ have us handle our children? Maybe we're people, when we go to our children, we come to them with truth. And we come with an iron fist, forgetting that we're supposed to come with truth and love. How does that reshape our relationships with our kids, if we come to them with truth and love. Or maybe, on the other hand, we're on the other side of the scale. We only come to our children with love and we embrace whatever they say and we embrace whatever they do, and we never bring truth to bear. We come to every relationship with truth and love that affects every relationship. That's a hard balance. But that's the kind of balance that Christ is calling us to bring to our families and our relationships, maybe, maybe with, with our neighbors. Think of maybe, maybe there are neighbors that are hurting, that, that you have. How would God call you to respond to your neighbor who's hurting? How, how do we love them in a way that is honoring to Christ? Or maybe, maybe it's in our jobs. The reality is, is that our employer writes our check, right? But do you know who we really work for? We work for the Lord. The scriptures tell us that we are to work as unto the Lord. Whether we're paid a little or we're paid a lot, it doesn't matter. God calls us to go and do our work with a good attitude. He calls us to go and do our work in a way that will bring a good testimony about Him to the world around us, to those that we work with. Some people are just a bear to work with, but we are called to love them. And we are to put Christ on full display in all those relationships. Or when it comes to our country when it comes to the way that we serve our country, the way that we love our country. You know, we have this amazing gift in America that's very rare. In the history of the world, it's called self-governance. And uh, you know, when, when Christians live under tyrants, th- they, have, they, have no, they have no recourse but to obey as long as that tyrant doesn't call them to do anything that is against God's law. They are to obey the tyrants, and they have no recourse. But the reality is is that God will hold those tyrants responsible. Hitler isn't getting away with what he did. Stalin isn't getting away with what he did. Mao isn't going to get away with what he did. All of the tyrants through history, none of them will get away with what they did. God will hold all of them accountable. But this brings another issue to bear for us as Christians living in a country where uh, the government is uh, a government of the people we are people who govern ourselves we vote for our own leaders and what this means is is that when we step into the voting booth we are determining the people who will then be representing us and the reality is is that god will hold us accountable for the kinds of people we vote for So even when we go to vote, it is an exercise of the lordship of Christ. That when we go to vote, we need to believe that when we are voting, we are voting in good conscience before the Lord. Every part of our life is reoriented and shaped by the fact that Jesus stands at the top of the hierarchy of our values and priorities. The father said, listen to him. And then finally, the third thing is this, it is important to find tangible ways to express our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know this, in any relationship that you have ever had, that that relationship needs to be cultivated, and that relationship needs to be uh, protected, and that, that relationship needs to be built. And uh, you think about uh, maybe those of you who are parents, you love your kids, right? And, uh, and, if there's a, and if you see your child in the street and you see a car coming toward your child, you will think nothing, right, of running into the street, throwing the child in the way, and taking the brunt of the, the vehicle to save that child. Is that true? I believe all of you believe that. Why? It's because you have this deep-seated love for your child that has been cultivated in your heart, and you're never going to let anything stand between you and protecting that child, even if it's a car coming your way. That's what that affection does, that, that love does. And, and, and yes, there might come a day, as Luke Goodrich says, that the, that the pressures of this world will continue to beat down upon God's people. But as we cultivate that affection, that love for Jesus... When those, those storms come, when those struggles come, we will be like that parent who's willing to, to push the child out of the way, to take the brunt of the, 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 the hit because we love him so much that, that, that we, would, we want to serve him, that we want to use our lives for him, that we want to pour our lives out as a living, living sacrifice for him because he poured out his life first for us and he loves us. So um, as I was thinking about this, um, kind of came up with a list of things in my own life that I thought about with the Lord that helped me cultivate my relationship with him. Remember that he's patient with me. Anybody who knows me, you know that, that, uh, that if you're close to me, you need patience with me because I make lots of mistakes. But isn't it great that we have a Savior who knew everything about us. He knew all of our, all of our deepest secrets that we would never want to tell anyone. He knew them but he's still patient with us and he promises to help us grow through those things, through those struggles in our life. He's, he's rescued us from sin's bondage. Just one great promise in scripture. We see it in Romans 8. You know, we were once... Uh, it says in Ephesians 2, Lost and dead in our trespasses and sins, we are under the dominion, the power of sin. But when we came to Christ, he broke the dominion of sin over us and, and, and uh, the bondage of sin over us. And there are many, maybe, people here who are struggling with addictions and so on and so forth. But the Bible teaches us that he has broken that dominion so that there is hope for you. That in him, you can be free from these addictions. What a, what a blessing that is. That the bondage of sin is broken in our lives. He rescued us from eternal destruction. Think about that. Think about where we were headed as rebels against God, enemies against God, people who held our fists up in the air against God. And what did he do? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take our punishment on the cross so that through faith in him we can live. And he diverted our pathway from sure destruction to eternal bliss with him. We think about how he shows us how to live in accord with his design. Um, When we were in Canada, Pastor Doug came up and he did a children's message for us. And we had a woman from China who was a computer scientist uh, uh, come to know Jesus. She, she, She asked Jesus to save her while Pastor Doug was leading the children's message. Amazing thing. And she had a total transformation of her life. And, uh, and she was passionate about the Lord. And I, I asked her, I said, why are you so passionate about the Lord? She said, well, I, I, I program computers. And when I program computers, I tell the computer what to do. And it does what I says, say. And, it, and the computer functions best when it lives according to my design. And she said, by the same token, God is the one who made me. He is my programmer. He is my creator. And I understand that my life will function best when I live in accordance with his design for me. And so she was passionate about living the Christian life. We have an actual design, and the designer has given us a way to live according to that design. And though the Christian life is a hard life, and we don't want to hide that or dismiss that, I want to tell you that there's no better life to live than a life lived for Christ. There's no question about that. Think about it. We never have to earn his favor. Have you ever had somebody in your life where you, you constantly were trying to earn their favor and you felt like you could never get it? One of the saddest things, and, and I've seen it in a lot of men's lives, where, where they were always trying to get their father's uh, approval and affection. And even after their father died, they, they still kind of lived that way, wanting their father's approval. And the beautiful thing is, is that if you know Christ, you are accepted by, by him through his work on the cross for you, and He has you have his approval. You have his favor. He loves you, and there's nothing that you can do to make him love you anymore, and there's nothing you can do that will cause him to love you any less. What a, what a gracious God. He loves us the way we are. There's so much self-loathing in the world. What a beautiful thing that our Savior, our God, our maker loves us just the way that we are. And he made a future for us that was otherwise impossible. Here we have the story of Jesus. Why did Jesus do all of these things? It's so that his people could spend eternity forever with him. He wants a relationship with us. What's the whole point? We talked about these temples. What's the whole point of a temple? It's a place where we can meet with him. God wants to fellowship with us. He wants a relationship with us. He wants to spend every day with us. He wants to spend eternity with us. And the question is, is whether you've ever come to that place or you've experienced. That's why Jesus came to give us this opportunity to spend the rest of the course of eternity with him and to gaze upon him in his glory and his wonder and to experience that breathless wonder that is only found in him. I hope you know this love. Let's pray. Father.